0: All right, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 23 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's some underneath uh, at least most of the chairs, and this morning's passage in those Bibles is on page 828. At least that's where it starts. Again, that's Matthew chapter 23, and our passage this morning is the whole chapter. So it's a big one. Don't worry, uh, I'm not planning on us being here forever, but who knows? All right, let's start reading in verse 1, and we're going to go ahead and just read the whole chapter right at the beginning. Again, that's Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you. But not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers." And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in his temple, he is bound by the oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we were not the initial recipients of these words of Jesus. But we also recognize that sin is a universal struggle. It's not something that's isolated to the Jews that Jesus had conflict with in his day. And so we ask that this morning that as we read his words which indict them and pronounce judgment on them that your spirit would show us how our lives struggle with similar things how we face self-righteousness and legalism and hypocrisy and pride just like they face them. And that those things distract us and keep us from remembering what Christ has done for us. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. We pray that this morning we would remember again the grace that we've been shown in the gospel, that we are accepted and, and pleasing to God, not because of what we do or because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. So, as we read through that, I'm guessing that you all picked up on the fairly common and obvious theme that uh, Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the scribes and Pharisees, and he calls them uh, a whole bunch of stuff. He calls them hypocrites, he calls them fools, he calls them blind. he pretty much just takes them to task. And really, this shouldn't be surprising to us, because as we've gone through Matthew up to this point, we've seen uh, Jesus' conflict with the Jewish religious leaders just grow and grow and grow, and especially over the past few weeks. I mean, that's, that's all we've seen in Matthew, is him in conflict with the Jews, and so last week there were those, those three tests, you know, these different groups come up to Jesus and they try and trap him in his words, and of course Jesus is much smarter than they are and is much wiser than they are and much more righteous than they are, and he responds to those tests uh, in a way that answers their question and shuts them up all at the same time. And then so today in our passage, what we see happening is Jesus is still in the temple courts where they were kind of questioning him last week. And he's speaking to, first, the, the disciples and the crowds about the Pharisees. So in like that first little chunk we read, he's saying, this is who these guys are. And he's telling the crowds and he's telling the disciples that they are going to have to choose. Do they want to follow the Jewish religious leaders? Or do they want to follow Jesus and do what he says? And then... You know, as would have happened, you know, Jesus is in the temple courts, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, they were around in the temple. At some point, it seems like they walk over and they listen in on Jesus' teaching, and then he just uh, unloads on them with these seven woes that we just read. And so as we move through this passage, what we're going to see is that each of these woes, they they kind of fit into a specific category. He's addressing specific sins in the lives of the scribes and Pharisees and in their practices. And the main point of this passage and the main point for us this morning is this, that self-righteousness, legalism, hypocrisy, and pride prevent us and they prevent others from remembering what Christ has done for us. And when we don't remember what Christ has done for us, they increase in us. So self righteousness, legalism, hypocrisy, and pride, they keep us from remembering the truth of the gospel. And when those things are present in our life, they increase in us. Wait, that didn't make sense. <laughs> those four things, they prevent us and others from understanding the gospel. And when we don't understand the gospel, they increase. There we go. All right. As I said, this, this first little chunk here is where Jesus is speaking to the crowds about the Pharisees. We see this in verse 1. You know, Matthew tells us, Then Jesus said to the crowds and the disciples, In the crowds, some of them probably would have been Pharisees and scribes, but he's talking to the people that would have just been there for the Passover, right? They're celebrating this huge festival. The temple would have been packed with people, and Jesus is speaking to them uh, in light of everything that's happened, right? He just asked this question to the Jewish religious leaders at the end of 22, and Matthew tells us that they couldn't answer him anything. So they were silenced, and then Jesus takes the opportunity to speak, and he teaches the crowds about them. And in verses 2 through 4, we kind of get this really interesting picture of them that Jesus says. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. There wasn't actually, you know, there wasn't this chair that they had in the temple that belonged to Moses. There wasn't a literal Moses' seat. What he's saying is that they're kind of in Moses' line. They they are teachers of the law. They are the speakers of the law, just like Moses was back in the Old Testament. That's who the Pharisees are. They're the people who uh, were kind of the professional law teachers in Jewish society. And then he says... So do, in verse 3, and observe whatever they tell you, which is surprising. Because right up to this point in Matthew, Jesus hasn't had a whole lot of nice things to say about the Pharisees. Pretty much everything he's said about them has been critical in some way, because they've misunderstood the law, and they've misapplied the law, and they've misinterpreted the law. And so he usually has bad things to say about them. But here he says, do and observe whatever they tell you. And the key comes in the next phrase in the next verse. But not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Jesus is almost being sarcastic here. He's he's using irony to make his point. He's saying, do what they tell you to do. And that would have caused the disciples, just like we just recognized, to listen. Because Jesus has said before, don't do what they tell you to do. You've heard it said this by the Pharisees. Instead, do this. Jesus is setting this up because he's going to, to talk about how they missed the point and how they misinterpret the law. And he says that, you know, they're not even willing to do what they say themselves, right? They tie up these heavy burdens, they put them on other people, but they're not willing to lift a finger. They don't do it themselves, they just want to make other people do it. He's saying in verses 4 and 5, this kind of leads into the woes, that they are self-righteous, they're legalists, they're they're, they're hypocrites. We see this in verse 5, right? They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, right? These phylacteries were these things that they wore uh, that had Bible verses in them from the Torah. Right? Back in, in Deuteronomy 6 and the Shema, which was this foundational belief for the Jews, he says, you know, bind these things on yourself and tie them on your doorposts and put them on your, your house. You know, he's, he's telling them to write the law, you know, not just upon themselves and their buildings, but upon their hearts and the Pharisees missed the most important step, but they got down all the details, right? They had all these things and they had these long fringes. And, and what we should recognize here is that doing these things in themselves isn't bad, right? It says their they're fringes This is a part of the garment that all Jewish men wore. They had these long fringes on the bottom of their kind of outer garments. And what we see in Matthew is that Jesus did the same thing, right? There's that passage back in Matthew 9, which we were in like six years ago, where that, uh, there's that woman who has that, that perpetual discharge of blood and she uh, is trying to get to Jesus through the crowd and she reaches out and she touches the fringe of his garment. She's touching this thing right here that, that Jesus is talking about. So Jesus himself wore fringes on his garments. It's not bad to keep the law. It's bad to do it in such a way so that other people look at you and say, wow, those people keep the law. I think it's important for us to, as we go through this to recognize that obedience isn't the bad thing. It's obedience for the purpose of other people seeing your obedience and uh, accepting you or glorifying you because of your obedience. Jesus also tells us that they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. Uh, you know, the uh, Marcus and the Duffies get the bonus points for that today because they're sitting in the front row. The best seats in the synagogue were the places that were closest to the scrolls of the law. Uh, So really, there isn't actually a best place to sit here because we all have Bibles, right? There isn't this one location up in the front of the room where we have the word of God. We live in a time where we uh, graciously get to have the word ourselves and read the word ourselves and understand the word ourselves and we don't need some professional teacher to do it for us. So, In verses 5 through 7, he describes their actions, the fact that they're concerned with themselves. And then he tells the crowds and the disciples what to do about it in verses 8 through 12. He says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted." So he says, don't be called these names. And then for Father, in verse 9, he says, don't call anyone Father. So the question for us is, is, is Jesus here saying that it's wrong to use these titles? Right, my dad is, is here on the second row this morning. Is it sinful for me to call him Father? Is it okay if I call him Dad? What about Pop? Is that okay? <laughs> Jesus here isn't... Saying don't use titles. He's not saying you can't, you know, say, hey, I have this teacher at school. He's not saying that we can't call people elders or pastors or deacons. What he's saying is that when those titles become a symbol of status, which means that, like, if we have the view at this church, and thankfully we don't have this view, that only the pastors understand the word of God, or only the pastors are gifted by God to teach, or only the deacons are able to serve in the church. Or, uh, you know, if, if we made this huge distinction between who the elders are and everyone else, that would be, I think, one of these things that Jesus is speaking against. It's not using the titles. It's using the titles in such a way that creates this Uh, unequal distinction between people in the church and people in the community of God. That's what's happening in the Jewish world. The the Pharisees uh, and the rabbis made themselves out to be these people who were greater than everyone else, and more important than everyone else, and more worthy of respect than everyone else. And that's not something that we want to see in the church, because as Jesus says, you are all brothers. We're all equal, and there should be no hierarchy of respect or authority within the church and he explains this in verses 11 and 12 where he says that what they should do right don't do all these things don't be called teacher don't be called instructor don't call anybody father instead be humble be your servant our goal should be instead of to get respect and get appreciation get status within the church our goal should be to serve one another And when we're doing that, it doesn't matter what people call us or don't call us. Humility should be the mark of the church. And when it's not, I think we're slipping into the kind of hypocrisy and pride that Jesus criticizes the scribes and Pharisees for. He's going to unpack this, all of these things, in these seven woes that follow. So the first one is in verses 13 and 14. Well, really, just verse 13. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those to go in. First of all, we should probably think about what the word woe means, because at least that's not part of my regular vocabulary. Woe can mean a couple different things. It can mean just a, a kind of uh, compassionate alas, like, Woe to me, my refrigerator broke. I'm going to have to buy a new one. I don't really want to. Or it can be a strong condemnation where some person is pronouncing judgment on someone else. They're saying, you need to watch out because these things are going to happen to you. And I think it's obvious which one is happening in this passage. And what we need to recognize here is that you know, even though Jesus is is unloading on these guys, and he's calling them names, and he's criticizing them for the way they live, this isn't him doing something that he's earlier told us not to do in the Gospels, right? He says uh, that we shouldn't judge. He says that we should love our enemies in the Sermon on the Mount. So he he teaches all this stuff about how we should treat other people who disagree with us, and then here, he just kind of lays these guys out. And some people have have taken this passage and say, well... You know, this, this really can't be Jesus' words because he wouldn't do that. Jesus was this guy who just went around and loved everybody. He didn't criticize them, he didn't say harsh things. But what we have to recognize here is that Jesus isn't just another person. Jesus is the Messiah. Right? He's the king over God's people. And so what he's doing here is he is pronouncing judgment upon them because he is the judge and he has that position. We don't have that position, but he does. And so that's why he can do this in, in such a seemingly harsh way because he wants them to recognize their sin and turn from it. And that's what is kind of all packed into this, this short little three-letter word, woe. He's, he's pronouncing judgment as their judge. And in this first one, he's condemning them. Right? He uses this, this weird phrase, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. So the question is how what are they doing to shut the kingdom of heaven in people 's faces and what they're, what Jesus is saying is that they're they're not allowing people to come into the kingdom' they're, they're keeping people from it and the reason the way that they 're doing that is, is as we 've seen as we 've gone through Matthew over and over and over again they 're criticizing jesus they 're telling people he 's not the messiah that he 's someone else they're pointing out problems with what he does and and announcing to the crowds that he isn't the Messiah. And so because they are leading people astray, because they are keeping people from recognizing Jesus for who he is, for for seeing him as the Messiah, they're they're keeping them out of the kingdom of heaven. They're shutting it up in their faces. They themselves aren't going in because they don't want to admit that he's the Messiah, and they're keeping other people from doing the same thing. And what we're going to see is that everything that follows... All of their their sins after this point, I think, are fueled by this first one. Because they're unwilling to recognize him for who he is. Because they're unwilling to recognize that he was sent by God to redeem them. That's why they do all these other things. Because if they would get the fact that he was sent from God, then they would listen to his teaching. They wouldn't be self righteous. They wouldn't be legalistic. They wouldn't be hypocrites. They wouldn't be filled with pride. They would renounce all of those things and follow him just like you know, he, had, he had called the disciples to do and just like he's called us to do. And the point for us is that if, if we give in to these temptations, if we uh, have self-righteous and legalistic and hypocritical tendencies in our lives, then that's a sign that we're making the same mistake that they made. It doesn't mean that we've, you know, rejected the Messiah completely. But it probably means that there are some significant ways in our lives in which we are failing to believe who he is and what he's done. We'll talk more about that as we go through. These, these next three woes, these are all about how they were self-righteous and legalistic. But real quick before we get there, I skipped a verse which is actually skipped in our Bibles. You'll notice that verse 13 ends and verse 15 begins. We've seen this before as we've gone through Matthew where there's a verse that's in the footnotes. If You have an ESV, the footnote says, uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. And then before that it says, Some manuscripts add here. So the question is, why is there a verse that's in the footnotes but not in the Bible? What's happening here is this this verse is an almost exact quote of Mark 12, 40. And it seems like what happened in the manuscripts is at some point, some guy, some scribe is reading through, some Christian scribe, not Jewish scribe, is reading through the New Testament, and he gets to this passage, and he thinks, hey, there's this verse that's almost just like that in Mark. And so he writes it in the margin, just probably for his own study, for his own benefit. And then sometime later, another scribe is making a copy of that manuscript, and it moves from the margin to the text. And so we have all these much earlier, much better uh, copies of the New Testament, which don't have this verse in here. And the reason why it goes from 13 to 15 is because there's this guy named Robert Stephanus, who back in the, uh, the 1500s, he's the guy who put the verses in the Bible, right? The verses weren't inspired. It's not like Matthew wrote all these numbers down as he's writing the Bible. Some guy later took the manuscript that he had and he thought, hey, it would be a whole lot better if when we're talking about the Bible in church, we could say, Matthew 23 verse 14 instead of saying, hey, you know that part in Matthew somewhere kind of three, two-thirds of the way towards the end where he talks about devouring widows' houses and then everybody just kind of flips around until they find it? He wanted it to be easier and so he put verses in the Bible and that's, that's great because it's, it's a huge help to us but... The manuscript that he used evidently had this this verse 14 in it, and that's why the number's there, even though it wasn't part of the earliest manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Did that make sense, or was it way more confusing than it needed to be? So it's not like some guy decided at some point we need to take this thing out. At some point it got put in there, but it was never part of Matthew's original work, and so that's why it's, it's in the footnotes. So the second woe starts in 15, not 14. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. I mean, this kind of hits them both ways, right? Because it hits the scribes and Pharisees for doing this, but then there also probably would have been some guys there who were these proselytes. Who were people that decided to follow the pharisees and jesus is saying you're twice as bad as they are what he's saying here is that because of how the pharisees converted people it wasn't just come and believe in this god who created the world and and gave us this law and his promise this redeemer is going to come it wasn't just the the truth of the old testament it was that plus and by the way you got to keep all these rules so it would be like if, if our view of evangelism was we need to go out and share the gospel with people and say, in order to be a Christian, you need to believe in Jesus and then do this list of things. You need to not drink, not watch radar movies, you need to homeschool your kids, you need to do all these things. And if you're not willing to do those, then you can't be a Christian, which is crazy, right? That's not the gospel. But the Pharisees were, were spreading the truth of God that way. And by doing so, you know, they at least had some knowledge of the truth, right? Because their whole lives weren't lived under that system. But when they would convert people, that's all they got. They just got the legalistic system of rules that they had to keep. And so when Jesus says that they're twice as much a child of hell, he's not saying that they're, they're really twice as bad. He's saying that they're further from the truth. It's harder for them to recognize the truth because of how they've been led astray by the Pharisees. The second woe, or the third woe here, he says, if anyone swears by the temple, and and he's got this whole list of just these these odd things that the Pharisees said, right? They came up with these, these ridiculous stipulations for how they could get around breaking the law. So, It's not okay to swear by the temple, but it's okay to swear by the gold in the temple. And Jesus is pointing out that that not only does their their view not make sense theologically, it doesn't even make sense logically. They're, They're believing foolishness, and they've constructed this false system just to make themselves feel good. He says the same thing in the fourth one, right? You tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So they're so concerned about all these little bitty details and keeping those that they've forgotten the huge, important, overarching purpose of the law. And what we should recognize here is that Jesus doesn't say that tithing is bad, right? We should give to our church, amen? He doesn't say don't tithe mint, dill, and cumin, He says, you ought to have done justice, mercy, and faithfulness without neglecting the others. They were so concerned with what they could outwardly see and what outward people could see them doing. And I think that that we slip into the same tendencies, right? Because nobody knows whether we're loving or whether we're faithful on the inside. But they know if we don't come to church. They know if we don't come to community group. They know what we do outwardly and what we, they see outwardly. And so sometimes for us, it becomes the same tendency where we're so concerned with what people can see us do that we neglect the more important things of the Christian faith. We, we dot our I's and cross our T's so that people can see that, but we don't do justice. We don't do mercy. We don't do faithfulness because those things are abstract and people can't see them. They really can if they're looking. So all of these, these, these first or these, these this next group of woes here, which deal with with self righteousness and legalism, and just this this belief that the Pharisees and the scribes had that they were good on the inside, that they were good on the inside because of everything that they did on the outside, and that's what Jesus is indicting them for. So I think the point for us in these is that. Just like for them, where their self-righteousness and their legalism kept them from recognizing Jesus for who he is, it causes us to fail to recognize what he's done for us. And I think this is a hard part for us, because this is a place where we get to in the Gospels where it's really easy for us to check out, because the Pharisees are just so bad, right? They're these people who, who killed Jesus. And Jesus is just laying them out for all of this stuff. And it's easier for us to say, I'm not like them. I'm not self-righteous and legalistic like they are. I don't even think about tithing on my spices. And so it's easy for us to think that these aren't things that we struggle with. But the reality is that just because we don't struggle with self-righteousness and legalism in the ways that the Pharisees and scribes do, doesn't mean that we don't struggle with them. And so I want us to talk just, just briefly before we move on to the next section about what self-righteousness is and what legalism is so that we can see that we do struggle with these things, even if we don't do it in the same way that you know uh, the scribes do or the Pharisees do or uh, typical Southern Baptists do. We still struggle with these things, even if it's in a different way. And so... I want us to think through two questions. The first is, what does it mean to be self-righteous and legalistic? And the second is, how are these things evident in our lives? So self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is an internal belief that our thoughts, convictions, and or actions make us more acceptable or pleasing to God. It's an internal belief. It's something that, that we think on the inside, how we view ourselves on the inside. And it's the view that that because of who we are, our thoughts, our actions, our emotions, they make us more acceptable or pleasing to God than someone else. Legalism is a a lot like self-righteousness, and the two often just get smashed together into being the same thing, but they're different. Self-righteousness is focused on inside. Legalism is focused on what happens on the outside. It's this, this preoccupation with our actions and keeping this list of do's and don'ts and thinking that by doing those things, somehow we will gain favor with God, we'll gain acceptance with him if we do all these acts on the outside. And so they're close, but they're different. The focus is in a different place. And so the question is, if we're not like the scribes and Pharisees, right? if we're not focused on all these, these law-keeping things, how can we be self-righteous like them or how can we be legalistic like them? I think that we're self-righteous anytime we rely on something other than Jesus as our uh, source of acceptance or favor with God. Any time uh, I or you look at something in our lives or something inside of us and say, because of that, God's pleased with me. For example, I think some of us probably struggle with parenting righteousness. I'm a good parent. My kids obey. I'm not like that other family whose kids are crazy, who yell at them in store. God is pleased with me because I am a good parent. I'm accepted by him because of the way I parent. Or, a lot of us probably struggle with theology righteousness. I have good theology. I follow John Piper on Twitter. (laughs) Because I do... God is more pleased with me than people who, who don't, you know, follow Piper. Or finances, right? I can control my spending. I'm not in debt. Or I'm poor. And I have no money. And because of that, because I'm not like those, you know, materialistic, consumer-driven Christians, God likes me more. God is more pleased with me because of how I spend my money. I like think at BC we have a lot of anti-legalism righteousness because we don't strive to keep the law because we're we're free from you know the uh, legalistic overlords of the convention. God likes us more. Whatever it is, whenever we look to something other than Jesus as our source of acceptance for God, we're being self-righteous. It doesn't matter what it is. We're only pleasing and acceptable to God because of Jesus. He's not pleased with me. He's not pleased with you. He's pleased with him. And it's because we're in Christ, because Christ is in us that we become acceptable and pleasing to God. And really... Self-righteousness is a lie. self righteous is, is not righteous. The only person that self-righteousness works for is Jesus. Jesus is self-righteous. And we're only righteous because in the gospel, he paid the penalty for our sins to give us forgiveness, give us acceptance, and he gave us his righteousness. We're not self-righteous. We're, we're Christ-righteous. So what about legalism? How do we who struggle with anti-legalism righteousness, struggle with legalism. Well, as I said, legalism is is anytime we focus on doing something or not doing something as a a source of acceptance for God. Like, if I do this, God will like me. If I don't do this, uh, God will like me. And really, we can make rules out of anything. It doesn't have to be the Old Testament law. It doesn't have to be scripture. It can be anything in our lives that we say, if I do this, God will like me. We can develop that out of church attendance, Bible reading, worship. Even sharing the gospel can become a legalistic thing for us if we let it. So the question that we have to ask is, how is legalism different from obedience? right? Because all of those things are good things. We should read our Bibles. We should go to church. We should share the gospel. I think legalism, legalistic obedience is when we act as if our obedience earns us favor with God. By doing this, God favors us. Gospel-centered obedience is when we say, God favors me because of what Jesus has done. And because of that, I can do these things in the power of the Spirit. The tough thing for us is telling the difference. And I think that the easiest way for us to spot legalism in our lives is when we don't keep our rules. Now, I'm not saying go out this week and break a bunch of rules. But if we think back on, on the past week, you know, think about things that we did or didn't do that we wanted to, I think... What we think in those moments where we don't keep the rules about ourselves and about God can show exactly how legalistic our hearts are. For example, let's say you're somebody who's committed to reading the Bible on a daily basis. That's a good thing to be committed to. We should all be committed to that. Let's say that last week you read the Bible uh, Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. But then when Thursday came around, for, for whatever reason, you just didn't get to it. The question that, would, that will let you know exactly how legalistic your Bible reading is, is how did you feel about yourself and how did you think that God felt about you because you didn't read your Bible on Thursday? The tendency for us is to feel like God is, is displeased with us or that we're less of a good Christian because we didn't read our Bible that day. But the reality is that God isn't any less pleased with us for not reading our Bible because he's not pleased with us in the first place. He's pleased with Jesus. When we connect our performance to God's view of us, we are being legalistic. I think another way it's evident is when we sin, You know, typically when somebody has an ongoing struggle with a specific sin, whether it's, lust or anger or depression or, or whatever. For people in that situation, there's a, a strong tendency to connect how God views them with their victory or defeat over that specific sin. So if I didn't get angry this week, God likes me. If I did get angry, He likes me less. When we're victorious, when we say no to temptation, we're in His good graces. When we give in, we're not. And in those moments, we often act as if there's this waiting period where we kind of have to like, clean ourselves off before we can come back to God because He's mad at us. Or we have to do these specific things in order to come into His presence. What we're showing ourselves in those moments is we're buying the lie of legalism. We're saying, God likes me based on how well I fight this sin. Now, obviously, we should say no to temptation. We should fight sin. God is displeased with our sin. But he's always pleased with Jesus. And the truth of the gospel says that, you know, no matter what that sin is, Jesus died for our sins, past, present, and future, and that's included in it. And so there's nothing we have to do to come back to him. There's nothing we have to do to earn his acceptance, other than repent and confess, because Jesus already paid the penalty for it. He's already made us right. There's nothing that we have to do. I think the way that we fight these things is simply by continually reminding ourselves of who Jesus is and what he's done. By remembering that our righteousness comes from him and him alone. That we're not righteous no matter what we do. We can fight the lie of self-righteousness and and when those feelings and emotions crop up in us where we think I'm better than them because of this, we can say I'm not. Jesus is better, and that's it. When our tendency is to focus on our performance and, and what we're doing or not doing to earn God's pleasure, we should remember that Jesus has already done all that we need to do. There's nothing that we need to add to that, and anytime we do add to it, we we fail. The next two woes are focused on hypocrisy. He says, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. The point here is, you know, we don't eat from the outside of the cup. We don't eat from the outside of the plate. On the trash route, you know, I've seen some trash cans that are fairly clean on the outside. And then you take that lid off, and there's like maggot soup in there. And just because the outside's clean doesn't mean we would eat off of it. Yeah, Jen does not like my maggot stories. The point is, is they're clean where everyone can see, but not in the important places. And it's the same in the next place, right? You are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but are within or full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. When I went to India, I got to see the Taj Mahal. And I never knew this about the Taj Mahal until I, until I went, but it's actually a mausoleum. There's a tomb inside for this guy's wife. And so, like, when you walk in, you, mean you can't see her, but there's a dead body in there. And when, when we were there, I thought about this passage because it's, it's beautiful from the outside. It's amazing. And it's white, clean, pristine. You know, everything's well taken care of. The grass is, you know, all trimmed perfectly. There's all these people who are there to see how beautiful it is. But inside, there's a rotting corpse. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. They look great on the outside, but inside, there's death. And for us, you know, I think there's a strong tendency to do the same thing, to be hypocrites like they are. Right? He's been calling them hypocrites the whole time. This isn't anything new, but here he's explaining how they're hypocrites. They're focused on keeping themselves clean and looking well on the outside. And for us, we do the same thing whenever our lives outwardly fail to line up with what we believe. Now clearly, as Christians, you know, there's going to be failure in our lives throughout our Christian life. We're not going to be perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. So hypocrisy is always going to be a reality. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about the failure that is bound to happen. He's talking about putting up a front that makes us look like we've got it all together. This kind of picture of this perfect Christian that you know, does what the Bible says and, and never stumbles and never falls and, and doesn't reveal confession and repentance to other believers. And I think that's exactly how we fight hypocrisy. Instead of acting like we got it all together, we tell people we don't. We confess our struggles to one another. We live life together. We, we walk in our faith in repentance. A while ago, Brian Phillips and I were talking about, about hypocrisy. And he said that uh, within the context of sharing the gospel, that he thinks that when we show people how desperate we still need Jesus today, Because we still struggle with sin. So instead of putting out this front, like, hey, I've got this down, you know, come learn about this Jesus who way back in the day helped me get my stuff together. Instead of that, saying, I need Jesus today just as much as I did then. Showing people how desperately we need him and his repentance just as much as we did the day we were saved. That's the gospel. Not. This thing that I did in the past one time at a VBS that helped me get everything right. The hypocrites and the Pharisees pretending like they had it all together, but really they didn't even know who Jesus was. The last woe deals with Pride. Jesus says, You build the tombs of the prophets, decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. It's easy to look back and say we would have done things differently. But Jesus is saying, That's not who you are. He calls them serpents, brood of vipers, tells them they're probably going to be sentenced to hell. And he says, On you may come all the blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah. Does anybody know who Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, is? Because I didn't. I had to look it up. What's going on here is Abel is the first person murdered in the Bible. We probably all know that one. The Zechariah guy is killed in the end of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, in the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, is the last book. So what he's saying is everybody that's killed in the Old Testament, from the beginning to the end, from the first guy that gets murdered to the last guy, all their blood is going to come upon the scribes and Pharisees. And the reason why is because they're going to kill Jesus. He's saying, you're not like, you claim to not be like your father's. You, know, you, you pretend to care about the prophets and the righteous. You decorate their tombs. You take care of their monuments. But they're going to end up killing the person that all of those people died to prophesy was coming. And then he ends with this lament where he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How Often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus is saying here that he doesn't want, he doesn't desire this judgment that he's pronouncing to come on Jerusalem. He's tried to gather them together. He wants them to repent, he wants them to recognize that he's the Messiah. But they're unwilling. And because of that, all This judgment is going to come down on them. And the next two chapters, which we're going to cover in a few weeks, are are all about the destruction of Jerusalem. This judgment is going to come. It's going to happen. It's going to be wiped out. And then he's got this cryptic line right at the end. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This phrase is kind of an a Old Testament uh, catchphrase for recognizing the Messiah. It comes from a psalm of David, and what he's saying there is, that I think, he's telling them, he's telling the city that even though some of them are going to be unwilling to believe it, that most of them, when the judgment comes, they're going to recognize what they've done. They're going to understand who Jesus is. They're going to understand that they've killed the Messiah. And hopefully that means that some of them are going to repent. It's easy for us to bash the scribes and Pharisees. But I think that we can recognize that we struggle with the same things they do, just in different ways. And while most of these guys probably didn't repent, You know, we, we can have hope that because we do understand the gospel, because we do know what Jesus has done for us, because we understand that he's died to save us from our sin and to free, it its, free us from its power, we can be people who, when these things come up in our lives, when the struggle to be self-righteous is present, when the struggle to be legalistic is present, when we want to throw up this front that says we've got it all figured out, we can remember the gospel and remember what Jesus has done for us and repent of those things. Not to earn his acceptance, not to earn his favor, but because we already have it because of what Jesus has done. Today, uh, we're going to remind ourselves of the gospel in two ways. The first way is what we do every week when we take the Lord's Supper. right? We remember that Jesus' body really was broken and his blood really was shed on the earth. This isn't just a story that we read about. It's something that actually happened in history and it affects us today. The second thing that we're going to have the privilege of doing today is baptism, which we know represents an outward picture of what happens inwardly in the gospel, where we die to our sin, to our old way of life, and we're risen with Christ to a new life. And so, what we're going to do now is uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll take the Lord's Supper after a time where we can kind of consider ourselves before God and then, then Matt and Tung are going to come up and they're going to talk about how we're going to do the baptism. So let's pray. Father, we pray that today that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, that you would send your Spirit to remind us again that all of our righteousness and all of our acceptance comes because of what Jesus has done for us that no matter our performance you are always pleased with him that even when we fall he's paid for our sin and even when we obey we're just walking in the good works that he's prepared for us beforehand We pray that you would remind us that the same grace that has saved us is saving us. That we don't have it all together and that we still need the gospel today just as much as we did the day when we first believed it. We pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding of the gospel and to use our knowledge of it to fight the sin that we face. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. Spirit, we pray that you would work in us now.